Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start off tonight by talking about genetic testing. We're getting into the holiday season, and you may be thinking of doing a genetic test or giving one as a present. Now, I've talked about this before, and if you uh, remember, I've said that I will not send my genetic material off to be tested by any of the companies currently doing such work. Personally, I won't do this primarily because I don't trust them not to sell my information to others. Uh, Being a staunch uh, (laughs) anti-capitalist, I don't trust corporations to do anything with my data that isn't nefarious. Um, (laughs) But I've also noted that the pool of genetic signatures that they currently have do not properly represent sample sizes that can return consistent results. People who have sent their samples to various labs have been given contradictory results. And this is especially true for people of ancestry that is largely uh, non-white European. And so obviously the majority of the DNA samples that are out there are of white European people. Uh, We've talked about this even in science, uh, actual um, scientific research, it's a problem. Because when you're trying to look at the DNA of, say, modern Africans to compare them to ancient Africans, the databases for those genetic signatures are much smaller than they are for white Europeans. And even worse, DNA testing for gauging the odds of developing certain diseases is dubious at best and outright deceptive at worst. And so in 2013, the FDA temporarily banned 23andMe from selling its health-related tests outright. But despite this, and despite the GAO, which is the U.S. Government Accountability Office, uh, publishing reports in 2006 and again in 2010 that accused consumer DNA companies of misleading the public, these companies have thrived and expanded. Now, there are several red flags to genetic testing. First, as noted, the algorithms used are limited by the data available to the specific company and therefore give different results. Secondly, the relationship between genetic markers and disease occurrence is complex and still often not well understood. So um, if you remember, there was the famous episode with uh, the BRCA2, I believe it's BRCA2 um, marker, where you have a greater chance of developing breast cancer. And some people were finding that they had that and then going and having um, prophylactic mastectomies. And while obviously someone should always be able to choose how they want to deal with that information and how they want to proceed medically, a lot of those women probably did that unnecessarily. And so it's complex. (laughs) Some of them might actually have developed breast cancer. And so that did save their lives. But because genetics are not an either or sort of thing, 
we can't know exactly how all of that worked out. And so after being banned, 23andMe spent two years developing tests that they could get past the FDA, but which are still guesses at best. Now, others have chosen to steer clear of the health aspect and instead suggest that they can tell you about a romantic match or your odds of being good at a sport or even the perfect diet for your genetics. Now, all of these are, again, based in mostly pseudoscience. And another risk that most people didn't realize until recently, adding your DNA to the database of a commercial company can now lead to your DNA being used by law enforcement agencies. And while most of us probably wouldn't see that as immediately concerning, the idea of your genetic information being able to be accessed by law enforcement should actually be very upsetting to you. And uh, I, I would say that at some point I might do a show that is dedicated strictly to how uh, CSI uh, crime scene investigation techniques are often deeply flawed uh, there have been several that have eventually been outright debunked. Um, and so a lot of people have been convicted on what was considered to be theoretically very uh, realistic scientific uh, understandings of how things worked. And then it turned out that, oh, no, this person actually had just made it all up. And so, yeah, it is very hard to be confident that law enforcement will be able to ethically use that information. And in fact, just last month, law enforcement in Florida was allowed to search the entirety of the Public Genealogy Service GED match, which had the DNA profiles of more than a million Americans, not just living in Florida. This is despite the fact that in May, GED Match had updated its privacy settings, which were meant to no longer default to allowing access by law enforcement. Now, of course, the reason for the change was that the company had previously already allowed police from Utah to access the database without users' knowledge. Now, the Florida cops were able to access the database by getting a court order, which the company did not fight. Now, other companies such as 23andMe have suggested that they would fight for such, such a request, but that leaves the door open to judicial mandates. That means that a judge could mandate that these companies have to share their information with law enforcement. And even if you don't have your own DNA in a database, you may still be identifiable. This is the problem. This is why the cops are trying to access this information, because not only might the person's own DNA be in there, but also they can trace, they can often trace people by their genetic relatives. The likelihood that someone you're related to having done genetic testing is astronomical, lawyer and bioethicist Katie Spector Baghdadi of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor says, if you're white, recent research has found that there's a 60% chance that you can be identified through relatives in these databases. The numbers will only continue to grow over the coming years. And so a study last October 
estimated that once 2-3% to of a population's genetic information is submitted to a database, anyone from that population would then be able to be traced. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do this if it's something that you're interested in. Uh, Especially if you're of white European stock, you might get a fairly accurate picture of your ancestry. But don't rely on genetic markers to tell you how you're going to live your life. How we develop disease and how our genes are expressed throughout our lives is a complicated and convoluted process. It has its own branch of biology called epigenetics. And so we have to be careful when we think about how this works and how this is affecting us. And so if you're concerned about your privacy, I'd wait until the laws catch up with the technology and we have safeguards in place that don't allow for your data to be accessed without your consent, because that is also a big issue. Okay, let's move on now and talk about something much more fun and interesting. Let's talk about the eyes of mantis shrimp. Now, the mantis shrimp is a bit of a weird animal in all respects. Uh, It's not a shrimp. Uh, It has nothing to do with praying mantises. Uh, It is rather an arthropod, and it features, they generally feature arms that have uh, one of two sort of deadly ends to them. Some have claw spikes and some have club-like protrusions. And we've talked about before how they are able to really make those uh, claws or clubs go extremely fast. Um, And they actually, the clubs actually create cavitation waves and, or cavitation bubbles, I should say, in front of them. And it's just crazy. And we've talked about that before. Um, and if you don't know about the amazing uh, death strikes of uh, mantis shrimps, you should definitely look it up. Um, because tonight we want to talk about their eyes. Now, there are over 450 species in the order Stomatopoda. They have become a bit of a darling of the internet due to the fact that they're so weird. So there's lots of places where you can look up about them. And so one of the things that is so weird about them is the fact that they have what it what are considered to be the most complex eyes ever evolved. <laughs> and so humans have three photoreceptors, red, blue, green. Birds add in a fourth receptor for ultraviolet light. Mantis shrimp have six teen photoreceptors. They can see UV, visible, and polarized light. They're the only documented species to be able to see circularly polarized light. They can perceive depth with just a single eye, and each eye can move independently. Their eyes are made up of tens of thousands of omnitidia, which are tiny clusters of photoreceptor cells along with support and pigment cells. So they're compound eyes, um, much the same as insects. Now, members of the species gonadactylids and lysioquilids also have a special feature. In the middle of their eyes are six rows of modified omatidia called the mid-band. 
the first four rows are used to detect visible and UV light. Each row actually has a different receptor for UV light, which makes them very good at seeing in the ultraviolet spectrum. The last two rows feature precisely positioned tiny hairs, which almost certainly allow for their ability to see polarized light. As far as the structure goes, each eye has three parts that look at the same spot in space. This is actually how they're able to have depth perception with a single eye. Around 70% of the eye focuses on a narrow strip in space so that the mantis shrimp moves its eyes continuously in order to fill in parts of the surrounding environment. They can even detect cancer cells and neuronal activity. And so uh, there are researchers who are working on developing imaging systems that can replicate this feed for use in medicine. Um, and that has to do with the polarized light. And um, yeah, it's just crazy. There's so many weird and amazing things about mantis shrimp. So we know that they have amazing vision. And we're not quite sure why. Um, some people have posited that it is for uh, the ability to message one another for mating or for other kinds of messaging. So they have little patches on them that they can flash at one another that are iridescent um, and things like that. But we're still really not quite sure why the heck they have such amazing vision. But we might know a little bit more now about how the heck they process all that intense visual information to make a picture of the world that they can actually interpret and use with a fairly simple brain. And so researchers Hannah Thoen and Justin Marshall at Queensland Brain Institute at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, teamed up with Nicholas Strassfeld at the Center for Insect Science at the University of Arizona, as well as scientists from Lund University in Sweden and the University of Washington. They began by studying a kidney-shaped bundle of nerve cells that are packed inside the eye stalk called a reniform body. Using the tried-and-true technique of staining and microscopy, sometimes the easiest and old-fashionedest uh, <laughs> techniques are just fine for the job, they were able to follow the pathways of nerves that connect the reniform bodies to other parts of the nervous system. This map of sorts showed how their visual system is interconnected. They found that a major link in the chain was the lobula. In other invertebrates, this area of the brain is known for processing various forms of visual information and creating a coherent picture. This arrangement may allow mantis shrimp to store quite high-level visual information, said neuroscientist Nicholas Strassfeld. Now, the research, published in the Journal of Comparative Neurology, also found that the chain linked to a T-shaped neurological structure, which in insects is called a mushroom body. I think we've talked about mushroom bodies before as well. And so while crustaceans aren't believed to actually have mushroom bodies in the same way that insects do, stomatopods have something which is basically functionally equivalent. 
And so in insects, mushroom bodies are responsible for general learning and processing smells. And so this set of links suggests that the visual information is processed into images by the lobula and then shared with parts of the brain that are devoted to memory. The fact that we were now able to demonstrate that the reniform body is also connected to the mushroom body and provides information to it suggests that olfactory processing may take place in the context of already established visual memories, said Strassfield. And so it suggests also that there are basically two separate neurological bodies that are involved in processing the information, which again, might help explain how the stomatopoda are able to process such a large amount of visual stimulus. Mantis shrimp most likely use these subsections of the reniform body to process different types of color information coming in and organize it in a way that makes sense to the rest of the brain, said lead author Thome. This would enable them to interpret a large amount of visual information very quickly. Now, of course, how and why they developed this complex and specialized neurological unit is still up for discovery. We still have no idea why they have such turbocharged eyes. The next step is to look for reniform structure, reniform-like structures in other animals to see how they are functioning in species with less radical visual acuity. The hunt is now on to determine if insects have a homologous center, notes Strassfield. If we are looking for homologs in the arthropod, in other arthropods, the reniform body would be the most obvious candidate. And so mantis shrimp continue to amaze us, and I look forward to even more weird and wonderful discoveries in the future, because they are weird. Um, some of them are very colorful. Some of them are very cute. Uh, some of them are, you know, less colorful and amazing, but, uh, some of them are up to, I think they get up to like almost a foot long. Most of them are pretty small though. Um, you know, the size of like a finger, but, uh, yeah, there's so many of them and they're so weird. And, uh, I really recommend looking on YouTube or, uh, somewhere else for videos, of them catching prey or uh, for the ones with clubs at the ends of their um, limbs, how they crack open uh, clamshells. It's crazy. Um, And I know there was someone actually working at UMass a couple of years ago who was working with mantis shrimps. And so I think that's probably when we talked about it before when I went to a talk and they were talking about the fastest animals on earth. And Um, their strike is really, it's up there uh, with one of the fastest in nature. Okay, so let's move on now and talk about an interesting find about crows. So living in large groups can have both beneficial and adverse effects on a creature. Increased competition and aggression, as well as greater exposure to directly transmitted parasites and pathogens, can all cause a loss of fitness. However, forming bonds and having social allies can have a stress-reducing effect, which can have a positive impact on fitness. In humans, we know that people with greater support networks have overall better health outcomes. A group of researchers wanted to look at whether or not positive health effects from social bonding can be found in species other than primates. 
And so a new study from Anglia Ruskin University in the UK by Claudia Watcher and her colleagues suggests that carrion crows, Corvus corax, are better off in large social groups. The team spent six years studying a captive population of the crows in northern Spain. Now, they did that because unlike carrion crows in other parts of Europe, who form socially monogamous pairs during the breeding season, their northern Spanish cousins form large family groups of up to nine individuals, consisting of a bonded pair, retained offspring, and transient males. Now, groups are based on kinship, cooperation in nestling, provisioning, and territorial defense. And so these bonds are characterized by low levels of aggression and high levels of reciprocal activities, support in antagonistic encounters, and sharing of information and resources. The researchers paid careful attention to their behavior in different size groups and measured friendships using a sociality index. They also studied the bird's droppings and measured the parasite load of the common gastrointestinal bug coccidian by looking for oocysts. Those are a form of the parasite that it takes when it's outside of a host's body. They found that despite the idea that increased contact with individuals should lead to greater transmission of infections, crows with strong social bonds who lived with more relatives and in larger groups had significantly less parasite load than less social, sociable crows. It is a commonly held belief that animals in larger groups are less healthy as illness spreads from individual to individual more easily, said Washer. We also know from previous studies that aggressive social interactions can be stressful for birds and that over time, chronic activation of the physiological stress response can dampen the immune system, which can make individuals more susceptible to parasites. Therefore, the result of our six-year study showing a correlation between sociability and health are significant. It could be that having close social bonds reduces stress levels in crows, which in turn makes them less susceptible to parasites. Now, the research was published in the journal Animal Behavior. The team suggests that it is not a case where healthier crows tend to be more social because these are captive crows that are constrained by the number of family members within each group. Because group size and composition in this captive situation were obviously not under the control of the crows themselves, the reduced parasite burden in kin-based groups was likely to be a consequence and not a cause of the presence of relatives, suggesting that social bonds in general affect health and not vice versa, they write. And so they conclude that social complex complexity has deep phylogenetic roots as it is found in a variety of mammals and birds, but we are only just beginning to understand its evolution. This study should add to the base of knowledge of how social bonding may affect fitness in concrete ways that are related to evolution. And so that is very cool. And so, yeah, we are going to move on in a second to talk about another set of birds and how they are doing social bonding. But right now we have to take a break for some uh, PSAs 
and show promos. So hang on for just a moment. For all the best in Americana, check out Roots and More Tuesday morning from 7 to 9. From blues, folk and rock to Cajun, Zydeco and alternative country, Roots and More brings you emerging artists, new releases and older favorites. Tune in Tuesday morning from 7 to 9 on Valley Free Radio. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. What did they just say? If you often find yourself asking that, you may benefit from the new audio-enhancing technology available at the Forbes Library in Northampton. Designed to work with or without a hearing aid, the new and improved audio-visual systems in our meeting rooms, along with countertop loop systems at our service desks, are some of the new technology the library now has. With federal funds provided by the Institute of Museum and Library Services and administered by the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners. You'll now find hearing the librarian and guest lecturers a whole lot easier. Call 413-587-1017 or email info at ForbesLibrary.org to find out more. Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. Join me, DJ Vinyl Scratch, on the warm heart of Africa. From Cape Town to the Congo, Marrakesh to Mogadishu, and to the New World and beyond, we explore the best in pop music from Africa and the Afro diaspora all across the globe. Once again, that's 7 to 9 p.m. every Wednesday, only on Valley Free Radio. Okay, we are back. And we are going to talk about another set of birds. Now, bonding of the sort that we talked about is common in animal in the animal kingdom, obviously. But it's often been thought that only large-brained animals for that only large-brained animals had complex, multi-level societies. But recent research published in the journal Current Biology suggests that other animals might have the ability as well. Lead investigator Damien Farine from the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behavior in Konstanz, Germany, was interested in researching how groups of animals resolve conflicts and make collective social decisions. Farine was doing fieldwork in Kenya and observed that vulturine guinea fowl, Acrylium vulturinum, were the perfect model animal as they tended to cluster in large groups and were able to be fitted with tracking devices. Joining with lead author Danny Papagiorgio, also at the Planck Institute, they were able to trap and tag more than 400 birds, fitting them with individual color combinations of leg tags. Over the course of a year, we then captured what I believe is the most complete picture of the social structure in a complex animal society ever, at least in the wild, said Farine. What they found were birds fitted into 18 distinct social groups with highly stable membership. Interestingly, there were 
there was not intense ter territorial behavior between groups. Instead, groups would often encounter each other, move together, and sleep together at night. This suggested to us that there is a lot more going on here than meets the eye. Watching these birds moving through the landscape, it is striking how cohesive they are. Members of the same group will often walk shoulder to shoulder, literally touching one another. The researchers then fitted all members of two of the groups with solar-powered GPS tags. They found that members of each group remained within 20 meters or 65 feet of other members of the group, 95% of the time. Now, given the fact that groups can consist of up to 60 individuals, and they often walk over five miles in a day, this is quite a feat. And again, uh, Fareen notes that what is striking about the vulturine guinea fowl is that they show cohesion at multiple social levels. Groups are very stable, keeping the same members over years, but comprise multiple breeding units between them. Now, they currently have no idea how, birds are how the birds are able to reform their distinctive groups when they are often sleeping in a confederation of up to eight individual groups. Logic suggests that to maintain such a complex social system, an individual would need a large brain. However, the guinea fowl have small brains, even amongst other birds. This discovery raises a lot of questions about the mechanisms underlying complex society, said Farine, and has opened up exciting possibilities of exploring what it is about this bird that has made them evolve a social system that is in many ways more comparable to a primate than to other birds. Our study does not claim that living in a complex society does not favor having a large brain. Our study, rather, it suggests that there may be alternative, simpler ways of achieving the same social outcomes. Okay, let us switch gears now and talk about music. Music is an important part of many people's lives. I personally love music, and I have very varied tastes, uh, from classic bluegrass to goth music to Mongolian throat singing rock uh, to Tom Waits and Johnny Cash. Um, currently, one of the, my favorite songs on my uh, phone is the um, Hank Williams version of uh, I Saw the Light. <laughs> and so, yeah. I like a lot of weird music, um, different music. Um, I like a lot of uh, Eastern European music. Uh, there is a, um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting their name. Um, there's a funny uh, Russian uh, group that I can't think of what the name is, but they're a lot of fun. And I have a lot of their music. Um, and so, yeah, music is very important. Uh, a lot of you probably listen to some of the music shows on this very radio station. And so let's talk about the possibility of discovering universal uh, connections to music between different cultures. A multidisciplinary team led by Samuel A. Mayer has taken a step toward researching whether or not music really is a universal language. 
The team combined modern data science with musical recordings and ethnographic records that have recently been released as the Natural History of Song database. Now, the researchers for that the researchers believe that there are indeed principles underlying sung music. They found not only that music is universal, it is found in all of the sampled cultures, but also that similar songs are used in similar contexts worldwide. The search for universality in music began in 1900, when a Berlin-based psychology professor, Karl Stumpf, heard, of a, gru- heard a group of Thai musicians play and decided to use his newly acquired phonograph to record them. He later conducted perceptual experiments with the same musicians. His goal was to seek universal musical principles while also acknowledging the diversity of musical forms. By 1933, his collection had swelled to 13,300 phonograph cylinders, and he hired Eric von Hornbostel, and Kurt Sachs to curate the collection as the Berlin School of Comparative Musicology. And for a brief moment, it was very successful. Unfortunately, this experiment was cut short by World War II, with key members of the school having to flee as Jewish refugees and the research program being destroyed by the Nazis. Now, incidentally, uh, I can't remember if I've talked about this or not uh, on this show, but this is also true of early work on sexual and gender diversity at the Institute for Sex Research, founded by Magnus Hirschfeld, a gay and Jewish researcher. That institution thrived between 1919 and 1933 before also falling to the Nazis. And in fact, the Institute's collection was some of the first books to be burned by the Nazis. When you see Nazi book burning, that's, those are the books that were being burned initially. And this included copies of the 1904 book, Berlin's Third Sex, which was an early look at gender variance with insights into the thriving drag scene and transgender community in the city. And this institute was also the first medical facility to provide gender affirmation surgeries. Records of the procedures and other medical records were also burned by the Nazis, literally setting back the work for decades. This was a really amazing and progressive place, which is, of course, why the Nazis hated it. Uh, Transgender activists were prominently featured in conferences hosted by the Institute, and they were employed by the Institute, uh, which had more than 40 employees. Um, And so it was very progressive. So, of course, it was destroyed by the Nazis, who hated anything that was even the least bit outside of what they considered to be the norm. But I digress. (laughs) Rather... uh, (laughs) Through, through a rather circuitous route. So getting back to the universality of music. After this initial push, the idea of a universality of music fell out of favor. Comparative musicology has been largely absent in academia, minus a few forays in the 1970s. The new work analyzes songs from a random sample of cultures and focuses on vocally performed songs as the voice is the most fundamental musical instrument, quote unquote, and song is a core component of human musicality. 
Using Bayesian statistical analyses, the researchers found that three main dimensions are found across music. Formality, arousal, and religiosity, which account for much of the diversity. They then analyzed recordings of four specific types of song, lullabies, dance songs, love songs, and healing songs, and found that these songs featured many examples of acoustic regularities. And while the volume of data might suggest that finding patterns is inevitable, the team actually compared geographic climate data or non-musical ethnographic data and failed to find comparable results. Now, some of the regularities found are fairly obvious. Dance songs are faster and more rhythmic than lullabies, for instance. However, some were more interesting, such as that of ritual healing songs, which turned out to be less melodically variable than dance songs. And a crucial finding was that variability in song context is much greater within cultures than between different cultures. They also found that the principle of tonality exists in all cultures. And so tonality indicates building melodies from a small set of related notes that are built upon a bass tonic or home pitch. They also indicated that some apparent deviations in the published works on musicology might be based not on an actual lack of evidence, but rather lack of reporting. Their work indicated that there is at least some basic but fundamental principle that governs the mapping of musical styles onto societal functions and emotional registers, which can in turn be scientifically analyzed. Now, of course, there are limitations. There is a vast amount of non-vocal music that is not contained within the database, as well as many cultures whose music is not contained within the database. And one of the things that they suggest is that a more comprehensive database, perhaps assembled using citizen science input, could help reach out to cultures not yet represented in the database. But it definitely suggests that there are some universalities, including some that are geographical. For instance, the existence of yodeling in the high mountains of both Europe and New Guinea. So while there is something unique about every culture's musical heritage, there are also deep roots of connection among all those who engage in song making. And of course, that seems pretty reasonable to me. I think that um, a lot of us would be able to kind of listen. I mean, me especially, I listen to all kinds of music and I find that a lot of it is very similar at its base. Um, you know, people are using different instruments and doing all sorts of different things, but it's still um, fundamentally about... It's, it's still fundamentally human, and I think that even though culture can definitely shape humans and how they uh, engage with the world, I think that something as basic as singing is definitely something that is going to be able to be shared across cultures. And I thought it was really interesting, the idea that there is more difference within a culture than there is between cultures. Um, and of course, 
we can totally see that in our culture that there's a ton of variety. Um, and so there are things that I, you know, will roll my eyes at that I don't like listening to that other people love. And music is such a, um, it's such a sort of visceral uh, thing. And so there are days when I wish that I did have a music show, but I don't know what I would do with a music show because I have such weird taste. Um, and so like my, the playlist on my, on my phone is just filled with all sorts of things. I mean, again, like I noted before, it could go from Johnny Cash to a, uh, goth industrial song to a, um, to a song from uh, the Russian steppes or uh, there's one song that I have that I really like that I found on YouTube, which is uh, a trio of Yemeni women. Um, and they are singing these songs. And uh, I, you know, I have no idea what they're saying. They're, they're talking in Arabic. Um, you know, they're singing in Arabic. I have no idea what they're saying, but uh, they have really great voices and I just really like the tune and, um, you know, I really like Middle Eastern and uh, Near Eastern uh, musical motifs. Um, and, you know, I like, I love a good Bollywood soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, there's pretty much very little that I don't like. Um, I will admit something that I probably shouldn't admit on this station since we have a lot of shows that uh, play it. But one of the few things that I don't like is uh, sort of classical jazz. Um, I don't like asymmetrical music. It, it just makes me very uh, twitchy. I don't know what it is about it. I need something to have a very symmetrical beat or else I get or it just it just rubs me the wrong way and a lot of jazz is very freeform and very uh not connected to a uh specific um symmetrical sort of beat and I find it to be a little bit hard to deal with um but you know I like the blues and things like that so it's not all jazz it's just sort of classical freeform jazz is just not my thing um the only other thing I don't like is really hard rap, um, but mostly that's because I don't want to hear uh, some of the words that they use, uh, not because I'm a prude, but because I just find that the way that they talk about women uh, is unfortunate in the extreme. Um, and also, I don't really have any uh, cultural connection to uh, what they're talking about, Um but I like, uh, I like uh, K-pop, <laughs> which is uh, sort of like light poppy rap often. But since I don't know what they're talking about, and since I know for a fact, uh, based on South Korean culture, that they're not talking about uh, women in really derogatory ways or about doing drugs or shooting people, uh, I can feel more confident listening to it. <laughs> So yeah. All right. Let us finish. I'm sorry, I keep getting distracted tonight. Uh, let us finish with this story. Uh, the researchers conclude in their paper that music is in fact universal. It exists in every society, both with and without words, varies more within than between societies, 
regularly supports certain types of behavior and has acoustic features that are systematically related to the goals and responses of singers and listeners. But music is not a fixed biological response with a single prototypical adaptive function. It is produced worldwide in diverse behavioral contexts that vary in formality, arousal, and religiosity. Music does appear to be tied to specific perceptual, cognitive, and affective faculties, including language, all societies put words to their songs, motor control, people in all societies dance, auditory analysis, all musical systems have signatures of tonality, and aesthetics. Their melodies and rhythms are balanced between monotony and chaos. So yeah, music is pretty awesome. <laughs> All right, we've got just another minute. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Parker Solar Probe, but maybe I will keep that for next week since uh, I think I've got a little more to talk about than I can squeeze into just a minute. Uh, so we are... Um, going to actually, I still have a few minutes. I'm sorry. So we can talk about the solar Parker, the Parker solar probe. Okay. So the Parker solar probe is currently orbiting the sun, stunningly enough. <laughs> and so the probe is 36 solar radii away and has started to send back a wealth of new and interesting information about the sun. They've found solar winds circling faster than expected, rapidly reversing magnetic fields, and blobs of plasma erupting from the corona. I wasn't counting on seeing surprising things this soon, Justin Casper, principal investigator of the Parker Solar Probe's Solar Wind Electron Alphas and Protons, or SWEEP, instrument. There's clearly not going to be a dull moment as we get closer and closer. The probe used the gravity of Venus to fling itself into an eccentric orbit that carries it faster and closer to the sun than any previous probe. This new data comes from two close encounters that have happened, the two close encounters that have happened so far in November of 2018 and April of 2019. The probe, using the field's measuring instrument, found areas where jets of plasma are punctuating a quieter solar wind emerging from a hole in the, in the corona, which produces regions where the magnetic field quickly whips around. The sweep instrument found spikes in particle velocity associated with these magnetic field flips that were recorded occurring a thousand times over one eleven day period of observation. In addition, the particle's rotational movement peaked at between 35 and 50 kilometers per second, around 10 times faster than originally predicted based on the sun's own rotation. So basically, these particles are going faster than the sun's rotation, which frankly makes no sense. <laughs> there is so many weird things going on with the sun that we just simply do not understand yet. Uh, we still don't understand why the corona is so hot. We don't understand why there's all these weird magnetic field flips. We're finding all of these things out, but we generally have no idea why they're happening yet. Um, and so to have particles rotating faster than uh, the sun's own rotation doesn't make a lot of sense um, from our, our current models. Uh, 
The Whisper, or Wide Field Imager, confirmed observations from Earth about the sunlight scattered by electrons and dust particles, though there was a drop-off in the scattering closer to the sun that suggests that there might be a dust-free zone. And so this had been theorized, but not yet observed. So this might be actually uh, giving us some data based to uh, confirm that. In addition, there was evidence of twisted tubes of magnetic field called flux ropes, and in a first, evidence of ellipses of magnetic field called magnetic islands. These are generated by the energetic consequences of magnetic field lines crossing and rearranging. And finally, using the ISOIS, or Integrated Science Investigation of the Sun Instrument, they found evidence of additional smaller particle emission events that cannot be observed from Earth. They found particles accelerating in different ways, including acceleration from compression waves, which had not previously been observed either. And the cycle is just starting. It is moving from solar minimum, so we've actually been in a solar minimum cycle, to solar maximum within the next 11 years. And so, said Casper, I can't even imagine what things are going to look like when we get three times closer. And of course, they're not only going to get three times closer, but the sun is going to get more and more active. And so that is very cool. Of course, it is a little bit sometimes disconcerting to think about the fact that we literally have no idea what is going on with the sun. Um, it's really kind of unfortunate that sometimes we're like, huh, that's doing a thing that we have no idea why it's doing that. Oh, dear. <laughs> and I mean, it seems to be doing fine right now. We don't seem to be having any real problems, but... Uh, there is something to be said for the fact that, uh, yeah, it's very weird to not know why these things are happening. And so um, hopefully sometime in the near future, we will learn more about it. And hopefully uh, the Parker space probe, uh, sun probe, will solar probe, goodness, tonight, Um <laughs> will help us learn more about it. But for tonight, that is all the time that I have. Uh, please do stay tuned and uh, have a great week. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.